and welcome to episode 18 yes episode 18 already of the apw property podcast where we talk about all things property with a little bit of humor thrown in so what have we got this week we've got myself callum williamson joined by anthony burke and scott creighton of right hand associates out of glasgow in the uk how are you both gents hi Carl. hi you you're good yeah, very, very well. So what's, uh, we'll start with the obvious, what's the weather like in Glasgow today? It's <laughs> flooding <and> sunshine. <laughs> it's actually, um, it's actually raining cats and dogs. So um, the people that are arriving for COP26, so like, well, there's nothing wrong with the, the world climate. Glasgow is chucking down the rain. <laughs> Look at you for this. That's it. That would be Sod's law. The one day you have some sun, it would be for the COP26 and they'd be like, Look at this <laughs> proof. Um, yeah. well, if we get one day of sunshine, we call it summer. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <isn't> it? <laughs> and it's usually about half two in the afternoon on that day. <laughs> yeah, and you're straight straight down the pub because the weather's great. And you've got to sit in a beer garden. <laughs> um, okay, so look, what are we talking about today, guys? We're just um, yeah. Firstly, thank you so much both for for giving us your time today. We appreciate it, and as I'm sure do the uh, hundreds of thousands of. Uh, expat property investors listening um so yeah we'll just go through some some common you know mortgage questions it's common stuff you guys will be getting common stuff we're getting at the moment and then i've written down a few short case studies that have been sent into us uh on linkedin or via email from clients this week basically just with the sort of queries we would normally get and i think it would be good to go through those with you guys and see what you you say um as professionals um and then the bonus section at the end for anyone that's still listening is talking about the ancient pyramids of Egypt with <laughs> the, the author of debunking the ancient pyramids of Egypt book, Scott. How does that sound? <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Callum. Thanks for that. Hey, we, <laughs> a nice deep plug. Thank you. <laughs> that's it. We, we'll, um, uh, we'll be getting some good book sales for you out of this podcast. Okay, then, gents, so maybe um, we did the questions already, so maybe we'll just do a bit of a case study. Um, so just reading a message um, from a lady we received. Thanks for the message. I'm potentially thinking of moving back to the UK next year. I will be working self-employed when I return, so I'm likely to get a mortgage for a few years. A friend mentioned, this is quite common, a friend mentioned, a friend mentioned it might be worth applying for a mortgage here in Hong Kong now before I relocate back. Do you have any more info on this? I what deposit is required? Stamp duty. Uh, I'm a first-time buyer and an expat. Uh, she okay. did. She did clarify that it would be an investment property. She would be buying, and it's pure an investment. She doesn't want to live in it when she goes back. Okay, you can buy an investment property anytime. It doesn't matter if you've got plans to return to UK in the future. So when you're buying a property. Uh, as a vitalite investment, it can be done anything at all. She is correct. If she comes back to the UK, she will struggle to get a vitalite mortgage. So her best advice for her would be buy it while she's still working abroad. She deposit-wise, minimum 25% on the vitalite. Rate-wise, you're looking anywhere between 2.89 to about 3.25. So you can go interest only, you can go capital repayment. Um, that is correct. The best advice is to buy before you come home. Yeah. If she waits till she comes home, she will struggle to get a buy to mortgage, especially if she's a first time buyer. Okay. Yeah. The issue as well um, about coming home, uh, 
is, um, you know, the lender could ask, do you have any intention of coming home in the next few years? Yeah. And if she says yes, they will then ask um, some fairly difficult questions about, will you be coming back to the same company, to the same job, with the same income? And, you know, then she might answer no to all that and then it becomes a problem. So she would need to keep that in mind as well. Yeah. So, I mean... And she responds to those particular um, questions. We can cut this bit out if we're not allowed to ask, but I mean, would the correct thing there just to say, just to, you know, don't give too much away and just say you're staying in Hong Kong for the foreseeable future? Well, no, you can say you're planning to come home. That's not an issue whatsoever. But it's, it's going to be harder to get a mortgage when she's home on a bike to late. So my yeah. advice would be buy it before she comes home. Yeah. People change jobs all the time. They can come home whenever they want. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, when they're talking to a broker, when they're talking to a broker, I will ask them, "What's your plans for the future? Are you doing this for a, a long-term investment? That sort of thing." Yeah. What we don't normally ask is, "When are you going to come back to the UK? What's your plans for coming back to the UK?" That's up to the clients if they want to tell us that. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Um, I think that's good advice actually, because most people, I think, naturally would think it's going to be easier to get a mortgage when I'm back in the UK, right? And that is. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a common thing we see. I'm going back to the UK. I think I'm just going to wait until I get back. Well, you know, actually, it's um, it can be more difficult, right? I mean, first of all, you've got to be in a job for at least three months anyway before you can apply. Um, yeah. So, so that's good advice. Thank you, thank you, gents. Appreciate that. Um, and number two, again, you guys will hear this one quite a lot from from uh, from expats. Hi, Callum. I left in 1998. I'm considering. Uh, I'm currently considering property in the UK, but as I've not lived there since '99, I'm aware it could be a tricky process securing a mortgage as my salary is paid overseas. So, I think a few issues there, maybe a lack of credit score, or credit rating in the UK for you know 20 odd years, salary paid overseas. Um, yeah, and he's based overseas. Is that is that a problem? No. Uh most of the lenders expect clients not to have a great credit score for the simple fact is your credit rating in the UK only goes back six years. So if you've been out of the country more than six years, your credit rating in the UK will be slightly less. So a lot of the lenders, are, when they do a credit score on a client, they're just looking for bad credit. They're not looking to see um, what credit you have. There are some lenders that do want you to have a UK footprint. So what that means yeah. is having either a UK bank account, a UK credit card. Tax return. Tax return. All lenders want you to have some form of UK bank account. That's important. You can get a mortgage without one. But being out of the country a long time, um, it's not really a major problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, bank, the banks tend to expect that, really. You know, if you've been out of the country for a long, long time, you're not really going to have a, a, a footprint a credit footprint here in the UK. So is it worth, um, is it worth, if you don't have a credit footprint, is it worth someone trying to build a credit footprint up by getting a, a cheap mobile phone or by just by trying to build up a, some sort of credit or does it, does it not matter at all? You know, is it just okay to say, you know? Yeah. I'd, I'd probably say it always, it, 
for the most time for expats, it's not a major issue, but it's always wise whether you're an expat, a foreign national or a UK national to have some form of credit footprint in the UK. All lenders will credit check you and they have to try and find you in the system. The, the, you get some lenders that can't find you in the system, they won't give you a mortgage. Yeah. So while it's not a major issue to expats, it's always wise to have some sort of footprint in the UK. Okay, and, and that can be something as simple as a UK bank account, and then that gives you a footprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And do you? I mean, do you? Um, do you have people asking you which which bank accounts or where they should set bank accounts up, or is that uh, not something you guys would get asked? Well, yes, you've got to have uh, a UK bank account to get a mortgage, like I said. So, if you don't have one, we can go to lenders. Pardon me, like so, bank trainer will automatically set up a bank account when they're giving you the mortgage. Oh, wow. Uh, the bank chain of hands is one of the best lenders out there rate-wise for expats. So not only do you get uh, a mortgage with a decent rate, you also get a bank account with them. Other lenders that will open the bank account for you is NatWest International. Other than that, you've got to go and try and get your own bank account, which is quite difficult. Yeah. Most UK lenders, if you don't have a UK bank account, won't allow you to open a UK bank account without you being resident in the UK. So it can be quite tricky if you do not have a UK bank account just now. That's um, interesting about the Bank of, bank of China and NatWest. I didn't know that. So are there, are there minimum sort of opening requirements or whatever for those? Or can you they're no, just set it's, it up? It's done automatically. Awesome. All right, well... I didn't know that. That's good. We've been uh, we've been using or recommending um, TransferWise. So they used to be called TransferWise, and now they're called Wise. And you can set up a uh, you can get a card and an account wherever you're based. And then once you've got that, you can go in and set up a GBP account, and they'll give you bank details and a bank address that are specific to you, and a, and you know a, a sort code and a account number so you can get specific details in gbp and that's been working for some of our clients uh, recently so um, yeah the one thing that you have to watch out for uh, with the online banking system like so transfer wise and um, sterling bank and monsolo yeah. is really if you're allowed to do direct debits um, from these bank accounts and they're not just um bank accounts that you use for deposits and that sort of thing the bank account itself must be allow you to do direct debits because all mortgage payments will be based on a direct debit basis. So it's just something to watch out for when you're using TransferWise or these other lenders. These other banks or the mortgage lenders won't accept that bank, even though it's a UK bank based in London. Yeah. Have you had experience with that? Yes. Um, a couple of clients came to us. They had um, these online banks. Uh, the mortgage lenders wouldn't accept the online bank, even though it's a British bank based in the UK, but because it was online, um, it was really just a, a savings deposit type thing. You must yeah. use banks that allow a direct debit process. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, okay, cool. Um, all right, then. Uh, let's have a bit of a chat on uh, Scott's book. No, we'll wait that. Wait till the end. <laughs> um, Okay, so it's one. There's four. You've got four. Yes. Have you? <laughs> yeah. What are, what, what are the titles? So I only it's saw, a major hobby. <laughs> I, I only saw the one which was debunking the 
uh, pyramids myth. I think that that's what it was. What, yeah. what, 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 what is the correct title and what are the other? Oh, we'll come, we'll come back to that later, Callum. I don't want to distract you too much. Okay. okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, um, let's just quickly go through some of those questions again. We looked at earlier, just in case people uh, haven't watched that video. So, uh, best, best rates at the moment, Tony, what, um, what are the, Best uh, rates, if you bought a 40% deposit, residential, you're looking at, with a 25% deposit, you're looking at HSBC, round about the 0.99%. If you want to buy a residential, two from home. On a buy-to-let basis, if you put down a 40% deposit, you're looking at rates round about the 2.5 mark. With a 25% deposit, and the minimum deposit on a buy-to-let, you're looking at rates ranging from 2.89 to rising to about 3.5. Okay. Great. Um, and what would be the something we always say to clients is they say, can I get a mortgage? And we we would say, yes, most people can get a mortgage. It actually just depends on the quality of the mortgage and, and the rate and all that sort of stuff. So if you were not getting the best quality deal, what's the sort of the median? And then what would be the very worst if you if you're on a, a, a sort of last choice lender? Um, last choice lenders are lenders that will basically take anyone. We do yeah. have them in the UK, the lenders that will take somebody with bad credit, they'll take someone with no footprint. Um, you're looking at lenders, really obscure lenders, like so to get a mortgages. Um, blue, you're looking at blue stone. Blue stone. Yeah. Um, you're looking at rates uh, rising from the very top end from 7% to 9.99%. Wow. I know. It's. Um, it's lenders that we wouldn't normally use, but it's called the last resort lender. If somebody buys a property, they put their deposit down, the developer's saying, give me the rest of the money, they don't have it. We have this back lender that will give them the money, but they'll have to pay through the notes for it. Sure. Okay. And that um, is that then, is that the be all and end all? And then I'm stuck for 25 years uh, for the rest of my short life with. Um, a nine percent mortgage, or in a year's time, can I remortgage it and get a lower rate, or what? If I if I end up with one of those worst case scenario lenders, what are my options, and what's the time frame then to to get out of that, if at all? Yeah, you, you normally if you're been stuck with one of the worst case scenarios, it's because of your current situation just now. It could be because of the property. Um, a lot of the high street lenders can get overexposed on properties. And you can't get a normal high street mortgage on offshore mortgage. So you're normally trapped when you go to use one of these rates. But it's only for a short period of time. After you own a property for two years, for example, if you buy off plan, after two years, it's not classed as a new build anymore. And there's a lot more lenders in the market that will look at that. So no, you're not tied in for life. You're just tied in for the initial couple of years. And then you can look about, see what's available elsewhere. Uh, one of the things that we come across, Callum, is let's say you're in Vietnam and you're a school teacher and you want to buy in the UK. Well, the vast majority of the UK lenders won't take that person because of the country they're living in. So that's when you have to go down to these types of last case scenario lenders. Adverse lenders. Adverse lenders. So it's really, it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. It's just the rates are poor. Yeah. And you can get out of it eventually. Uh, after a few years. I had a client, um, Callum, recently, um, the, our clients, both of them, um, were you know, considerable 
bad credit history and um, we had to use um, one of these adverse lenders. But they signed up for a two-year product, so 25-year term, but a two-year product. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that product, they can shop around again. They can remortgage. They can go to another lender. They can remortgage after that two-year period. They can even remortgage within that period, but they pay you know, charges for coming out of the, sure. the, the product early, the early repayment charges. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're not locked in forever. Yeah. You know, and as Tony said, you know, um, if it's a new build, well, after a couple of years, it's no longer regarded as a new build. You can always remortgage a way to get a better deal, you know, after time. The key, particularly with uh, my client's situation, these two clients, was to keep your credit in good condition, you know, make sure you keep your, 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 keep a clean sheet, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, imp- that's important for people uh, to know, you know, cause two years it flies by, doesn't it? You know, and if you keep those payments up and you, you might have to put a little bit extra into it, but you know, eventually the two years will be up and you can remortgage onto a lower rate. Um, yeah. t- Tony, something you, uh, you were sort of mentioning there is lenders liking certain properties and not looking at, certain types of property we, we might be going a little bit niche here now for some people but um whilst i've got you i think it would be good to know about sort of saturation levels with lenders looking at a, a development so say you're looking at a development of i don't know 40 units or 30 units or whatever how how many units would a, a particular development uh, would a particular lender uh, take within that development you know how, how does that work when you have not just a house um it doesn't have to be a new build, but it's a block of flats or it's yeah. um, it's units. You know, how is that viewed by lenders and, and how does that work? Yeah, correct, Carl. Um, all mortgage lenders in the UK has a form of what is called overexposure to the property. So that's their risk on lending too many units, lending funds for different clients to buy too many units within the one project. Um, each lender's got a different criteria. For example, Bank of China was normally about 10%, but sometimes they can go over. The vast majority of the lenders will only do 25%. So if you've got um, eight units in a block, then and you go to NatWest International, for example, they'll only allow two of those units, mortgages. Yeah. So while you can have a great credit score, tons of income, sometimes you can get overexposure on a project. Now, the second kind of overexposure is if, let's say you've got a block of 100 units and 99% has been sold as vitalettes. Again, you've got to be careful. Do your homework. If you tell everyone to do the homework, if a project is overexposed and it's mainly investment-led properties, then, again, some of the lenders will pull back on that and they won't lend uh, as much as they used to. So... You're looking at overexposure for investment properties and overexposure for the lender won't, won't take more than a certain percentage of the units. Understood. Okay, that's interesting. So um, what would be the way around that? Though? Would it be just to get your application in as soon as possible so that you would be one of the first people applying? Is that as simple as simple as, as, simple as that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you've got a... You, usually you can't apply to a mortgage lender for about six months before the completion of the property. Yeah. Or if it's a second-hand property, I'll try and get the application in as early as possible. The application process can take anywhere from four weeks to 
three months with some poor lenders to get what's called as a mortgage offer. Most mortgage offers will last three months to six months. So even though you apply now and the property is not going to be done until, say, April next year, my strong advice would be to apply for the mortgage now. Let the process take its time. Yeah, that, that's good advice. That's good for people to know, I think. And for us as well, with clients, you know, competing, the sooner the better and the more likely you are to get a, a, one of those better lenders. Um, like I think we've, we've, I think we've been going probably about 20, 20 minutes, even half an hour, 25 minutes now on, on this. Um, do you guys, is there anything else you'd like to cover off in terms of mortgages? I mean, I think we, we did the basics on that short video and uh, we've done most of the basics here as well. Is there anything else you would like to add? Obviously, other than working with a broker is very important because, you know, you know your stuff as we've just found out. Um, and ha if someone's using you guys, what, I mean, is it, is it going to cost me thousands of pounds or is it uh, quite reasonable? It is quite reasonable. Uh, most, mortgage <laughs> <think> brokers, <laughs> <laughs> most mortgage brokers will get a small commission from the mortgage lender when the mortgage completes. And other mortgage lenders um, charge a fee. Basically, the mortgage commission from the, the lenders might cover the admin costs of doing a mortgage. They might cover um, the compliance costs of doing a mortgage. But nine times out of ten, it doesn't make a lot of profit being a mortgage advisor. So we do have to charge an element of um, broker fee on top. Uh, usually we don't charge the broker fees until um, completion of the mortgage. So if the mortgage doesn't complete, we don't actually charge a final fee in most cases. The, the only thing I'd probably warn against is don't take too much into the hype that you see online and um, what you read about in the newspapers. Normally that's 50-50 where it's right or wrong. It is important to speak to a mortgage broker who's experienced and knows the different variables of the different lenders. And it's crazy because certain lenders have got such weird variables. You've got international banks who won't take certain nationalities yeah. wrong. You've got international banks who won't take certain countries. Um, so you could be working for BP, working in a certain country, being a UK national, and you, you might struggle to get a mortgage. So you've got to talk to the broker the broker knows the different lenders' criteria, and that's the, the main reason for using us. Yeah, and I think, you know, what does it cost to have a conversation? Absolutely nothing, right? You know, and we're constantly sending you stuff, asking you to have a look at it and give us your opinion, and, and that's just how building a working relationship works, isn't it? You know, and um, clients do the same with us. They ask for our opinions on things, and you know, we give our advice based on sort of our knowledge of the market. And I think that's just what it's about. You can't do it all yourself within property, can you? You need, you need to have a team of people that is an expert in their industry, a management agent, a mortgage broker, you know, conveyancing team, all these different people that can do the, the different elements very well and, at, you know, the lowest cost possible. So, um, so one of the things that we can do for clients is, let's say they want to buy a certain project, before they commit to that project, if um, the past years, we can actually check that project out with different lenders to make sure that number one, it's not overexposed, and number two, the lenders have to lend at this moment in time. Yeah. So it's very difficult if a client wants to go direct to a bank and direct to a certain element because there's so many variables, like I said earlier. It's, it really is quite tough sometimes. You need a bit of guidance, a bit of experience. But most of all, you must do your homework as a client. 
Yeah. Other things as well, um, Callum, but clients should always keep in the back of their mind. It's, you know, it's not just um, broker's fees, there's other fees as well. It's solicitor's fees, yeah. um, stamp duty, you know, all these things add, you know, to, to the overall cost. So they should obviously keep that in mind that they're budgeting for yeah. that as well. I think that's important. You know, I've got a little um, spreadsheet that I send out to clients that I use personally, and it's got all those different costs in there. You know, the stamp duty, a thousand quid set aside for legals and a mortgage fee as well, you know, and it does add up. But again, you know, if you're buying property for the right reasons, which we say is long term, then, um, you know, what's a couple of thousand quid on the way in? um, It's not an awful lot. Uh, So, you know, you you are right. And it's a long term investment. Yeah. And, uh, and as, Again, yeah, as long as you're, you're in it for the right reasons, then, um, yeah, yeah you'll, you'll do well. Um, okay, gents, I think that's enough on the mortgages. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. And if you don't want to um, listen to five minutes of book conversation, then it's probably good to leave the podcast now. But um... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see ya. I'm going as well. Um, Come on, just just tell us the titles of the books and tell us why what inspired you to. Um... Well, look, okay. <laughs> I've been in, I've been interested in ancient history all my life, um, so it's really just a hobby. It kind of started as a hobby, and, and then over the years, as I became more successful at writing these books, there's four books now, um, and um, the latest one is called The Great Pyramid Void Enigma. A few years ago, they discovered this massive new space. We just call it a space or a void inside the Great Pyramid. Now, we're talking about a space where you could park a jumbo jet. That's how large the space is in the heart of the Great Pyramid. There's no passages to it. Um, There's no access passages or tunnels or anything like that to it. It's just this massive space at the top, near the top of there, or just over halfway up the Great Pyramid. They never knew it was there. Um, they used this specialist called muon tomography, which uses cosmic rays, a bit like an X-ray, only it views, it looks into stone, it can see through stone yeah. rather than flesh. So they've done these um, muon X-rays and they found this massive chamber and they don't know why it's there. Is there any, Was there anything inside it? Well, this is the thing. The the, the X-ray or the muon um, images are very, very, very low resolution. All they can do is detect that there's this massive bloody space there and they can't see anything in it. It's just, they just know the space is there. The resolution of the images is just so fuzzy. You just can't see anything really. There's no detail. They just know the space is there. My book, my latest book, um, is... um, See, everybody marvels at the technology that they use to discover this thing, but nobody ever thought to look at what the ancient Egyptians actually said about it, if they said anything about it. And it turns out they did, oh, right. but nobody had been listening to them. Yeah. And that's what the new book is all about. Nice. Um, you know, so well, I've actually read the book, and it is um, quite a read. It's about... More than my Mr. Bump, Mr. Tickle, that I usually read. <laughs> <laughs> Is he the blind books he's talking about? Famous <laughs> five. That's it, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It, so that's, that's, that's cool. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think it, 
I think that sort of um, ancient history, I, I think it's fascinating as well. You know, I um, I love well, listening to podcasts on... Well, you know, the way I view it, Callum, is um, if we don't fully understand our past, we can't learn from it. And if we can't learn from it, how can we, you know, yeah. get things right in the future? Yeah, when, when I read the book, Callum, the one thing that struck me was, which I didn't know about, through to my lack of intelligence, I suppose, <laughs> was how many times the poems actually changed, the body class as being the North Pole. Yeah. Um, it's actually changed through the thousands and thousands of years. So you've got to remember that at one point in time, the whole of Egypt was like similar to Scotland. It was covered in grass and fields. Was and it? Because yeah. Of, because of the variance in the axis of the yeah, earth yeah. or... Yeah. So when you read Scott's book, it is really quite intriguing. It goes back, not just about the pyramids, but it goes back as to why the pyramids are set up in a certain way, why it lines up with Orion. That's amazing. Orion's belt. Yeah, the, the belt stars of the Orion constellation, yeah. the yeah. stars um, of um, the Orion constellation, which um, was written about in a famous book back in the early 1990s by Robert Vival, The Orion Mystery. Um, it's a fascinating book, but... Um, my research takes that much, much further. Um, basically, parts which Robert Laval missed, basically. So, anyway, that's um, essentially um, the the heart of the, the book is about explaining why this massive chamber that they've just discovered is there and what they will find inside it when they do event. I've heard recently that they're trying to drill a hole um, to put an endoscopic camera yeah. um, and to have to have a look ar around inside, and um, the book basically tells them what we will find inside. You'll probably put the camera in. You'll put the camera in. The way it it I can tell you. I can tell you what will happen. I've seen. I've seen. I think Mummy One, Mummy Two, and Mummy Three. Something, something like that will happen. Anyway, uh, amazing. That that's um that's really interesting. I think that I think that's so cool. I, I find that era of history and all that sort of stuff really fascinating. Well, the books are all on Amazon. Um, Scott Crichton just um. There we go. So for the books, guys, Amazon, Scott Crichton, and I think not more importantly, equally as importantly, um, for the mortgages, we'll, um, again, if any anyone that's listening or watch wants to have a chat with with um, these guys and Anthony, um, let us know. We'll put you in touch. As I said before, conversation costs nothing. Um, we'll put your details in below, below this video and podcast and stuff as well, guys, in case people want to get in touch directly and um yeah thank you thank you thank you so much that's been great and uh let's maybe catch up again it, you know the mortgage market is ever changing so let's perhaps catch up in a few few months and just do a bit of an update and see where we are with things no okay. problem you're more than welcome yeah nice thank to speak you. to you again Carl. likewise thank you so much gents and we'll see you soon take care bye